following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Although I'm going to say a lot this morning, you may not remember everything, but you will remember something. And that something is what God meant you to hear. So uh, we tape these sessions as well. And if anybody wants a record of this, I'm happy to email it to them or give it to them. Because we're going to talk about things this morning which are so good that they actually change people's lives. Praise God. Open your Bibles at Genesis this morning. We're going to start to read from Genesis chapter 2. And of course, this morning again, we're thinking about this beautiful life we have been given. And I want to speak this morning about an aspect of the beauty of this life that we have, this sonship that perhaps we've never known before. This is Genesis 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 18. You remember this uh, passage in the lead up to this? God had been making many things on the earth, and every time he made something, he said, Well, the word says that God said it was good. God saw that it was good. But here in Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, as I said, up to that verse, everything God had made was described as good Everything that God makes is good. I want to make that statement this morning. The very word God, or sorry, the very word good actually comes as its origin in the word God, the old English word, uh, really, for God. Uh, So good, really, derives directly from God. If God makes something, if something is of God, it must be good. If you make something out of a tree, it must be made of wood. If you make something out of God, it must be made of good. That's very important. Everything of him is as he is good. Why then do many of us as believers really are reluctant to believe that we're good in God's eyes? The more you humbly accept that Christians don't make themselves, but are made by God, then the easier it'll become for you to accept that in fact in God's eyes, you believer are good. In fact, you're very good. The extent to which we're all still striving to achieve some level of goodness in our own strength is the extent 
to which we have not believed still that God makes Christians. They don't make themselves. The church, the body of Christ, is God's perfect creation. It's recorded for us that Adam was put into a deep sleep when Eve was taken out of him. So too, we're going to see today that the birthing of the church, the making of born-again believers, is entirely God's work. Unlike what religion will tell you, it is not man's work. So right up to this point in the story of creation in Genesis, we see God kept making things, and each time he made something, he said it was good, he saw it was good, until he saw something that wasn't good. To him, when he saw man alone, he said, that's not good. Now, if we're saying this morning that good is God, and basically good has its origin in God, then to say something isn't good, for God to say something isn't good, he's saying that's not God. So he looked at aloneness. He looked at the fact that the man was not in communion with a being like himself, and he said, that's not me, because I am in communion with my own nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see? So what I'm saying to you this morning is, in a very real sense, God's creation of Adam was unfinished until Eve, until Adam found himself in a supernatural communion as God is with himself. That's why Adam looked at Eve and he said, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she's taken out of me. So in a, in a sense, really, when Adam looked at Eve, he said, me too. This is me too. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. I always think if there was a movie about this and Adam was uh, being played by Tom Cruise, we all know what he'd say when he looked at Eve. You complete me. <laughs> but there's a great truth in that, isn't there? Really, Adam was not a finished work until Eve was on the scene. You can be a human alone, but you become a person through relationship. So even in the natural, every person here is the person we are today because of the relationships we have been formed by. Mother, father, some of you are still in your thinking more formed by what your father said over you and what your mother said over you than almost anything else in your life. But that's about to change when you hear what your heavenly father says over you. So we're persons really because we've been formed in Africa, I believe they say, it takes a village to raise a child. And certainly the Lord believes it takes a church to raise a Christian. Relationship is key to the formation of personhood. So at this point in creation, to God, Adam, a being alone, was an unfinished work. To believe that Christ's work on the cross is a finished work is to believe that God did not make believers to be alone, but to be with him, to be in communion, a supernatural communion. No believer lives for himself or from himself. We live in communion with God. And God's will for every man is that no man would live by himself. In fact, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't got the Spirit of God in your life, you're not yourself. You're not who God always saw you to be, who God desires you to be, destined you to be, somebody with him. So can you see that then to God, Adam wasn't completely made in his image and likeness until like God. He was living in communion with his own kind, someone of his own nature. Look again at verse 23, what Adam says of Eve. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now remember, that passage began with Adam being brought all these animals to name 
But Adam could not call any animal woman because he couldn't find a creature that was of the same nature as him, bone from his bone or flesh from his flesh. And what I want us to see this morning is that God can call believers by a name that no other creature can be called by, son. Because you, believer, if you're born again, you have been taken out of the same spirit. You have been born again of the very spirit of God. And that's why God looks at you and sees, as it were, his own nature. Every born-again believer, then, is in a union, a communion with God that's on a different level of oneness that is possible even in the closest natural relationships. The oneness with God is of a super, that's above natural kind, a kind that supersedes every other natural relationship. If I was to go around every person here and ask you, what do you believe was the natural relationship that formed you most as you were growing up, what would you say? I would say it would have to be your parents. I would say, certainly up to the age of seven, the natural relationship that formed you more than any other was your relationship with your parents. Yet God's word declares that there is a union stronger than natural ties. It's possible for two people to enter a union of spirits where they become one flesh, one nature. Look at verse 23 again. Adam says, This Eve is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that clearly indicates that Although a man is born out of his father and mother through a natural birth, the union of a husband and wife points to a different type of union, a different type of relationship, a higher union. And that's why God's word says, in fact, that husband and wife is a picture or a type of the way Christ loves his body, his church. Paul wrote that a husband should love his wife in the same way that Christ loves his church by giving himself up for her. So the first Adam was in a deep sleep when some of him, some of him, his rib, was given up for Eve. But the last Adam was fully awake when all of him was given up for us. Eve was not birthed out of Adam in the natural way that every other woman has been born. She was supernaturally birthed out of Adam's own nature, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Every other woman in history was born a baby. Babies don't have bones. They have cartilage. Anybody know what cartilage is? Yeah, babies bounce. Don't try it, but they do. You know, and they break a bone, it'll heal very, very quickly. Because babies don't have bones. They have cartilage. The bones have to grow to maturity. But Eve was supernaturally birthed as a finished work. That's why Adam didn't look at Eve and say, Behold, cartilage of my bones. He didn't. He said, Bone of my bones. Eve speaks of a supernatural birth where the one born is already complete. Completely of the same nature as the one they were born from. Can you see that? Now, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. This is the only other verse I'm going to ask you to turn to this morning because I want you to see, in fact, 
that this is precisely how the church is birthed. The church is birthed complete in Christ. Colossians 2 from verse 8. And this is who the author of the Word of God declares the church to be. Who's the author of the Word of God? The Holy Spirit. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it, this is to you, River City Church, see to it that no one takes you captive. Do you know as a Christian you can be taken captive? <clears throat> Through philosophy and empty deception, which are based on human tradition and the spiritual forces of the world, rather than on Christ. Verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been made complete in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority, believer. Now notice those words in verse 8, rather than on. The Holy Spirit is saying to Christians, do not be taken captive. That means it's possible for Christians to be taken captive, to be locked up in anxiety, in fear, and in unbelief, because their thinking is based more on the natural wisdom of the world rather than on Christ. The world, in all its wisdom, does not know God because natural religious thinking all over the world about God is that we can grow in goodness. We can grow in God-likeness if we only knew what to do. And religion exists to tell you what you can do so that in your own flesh you can become like God. And the list, of course, is endless. Go to this place, worship at this place, eat that, don't eat that, go there, don't do that, say this prayer, don't say that, say this. All to try and train people to be godlike. And if you don't think Christians can become captive to that way of thinking, then you need to look at the book of Galatians and you need to just look at the church and to see what the effect has been of generations of believers comparing themselves with themselves under the idea that you can become godly progressively through self-discipline and willpower. I remember a few years ago, we had a group of students from the Caris Bible College. I don't know if many of you remember, there was a lovely uh, man there, a big tall guy. He was from Africa. I think he was French-speaking. can't remember this brother's name. But he had been a Muslim, and he'd been a rugby player, and he'd really badly injured his back. And some Christians had prayed for him, and he'd been healed. Do you remember? And he stood here one morning, and he made a startling statement. He said that in his time since he became a born-again believer, he was started to go around and testify in various churches, and he spoke to many, many Christians. And he said this, that in his experience of speaking to Christians, many Christians he met would make good Muslims because their hope was in their church tradition, in their prayer life, in their good works for God. <clears throat> in other words, that's how they measured their godliness. They measured their godliness in the same way that Muslims measure their godliness. But God's way, you see, is not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That you can simply train someone to become good, to become of God, by learning what the good is and what the bad is, and then doing the good and avoiding the bad. That's not how born-again believers are made. Jesus said to the Nicodemus, this flesh cannot give birth to spirit. Only the spirit gives birth to spirit. A man or a woman must be born again of the spirit. 
And God's way is not that man earns the Spirit or the nature of God, but that the Spirit of God is freely given to men in the gift of Christ, and all men receive Christ by believing that God is that good. That good. How good? <clears throat> good enough to allow all the fullness of the deity to dwell in flesh. That's how good God is. And when men say Jesus, when they see Jesus, they see all the fullness of deity dwelling in flesh. If you really see Jesus and believe him to be God, to know that God can do that, that he is a God who unites spirit and flesh, the God who pours himself out for us, who when he births us out of his spirit, allows all the fullness of his deity to dwell in us. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. That's John 1, verse 16. So when a man sees by the Spirit of God, he sees that God cannot make something that is not good, and to God being alone, being separate, is not good. So to be born again of God is to have the fullness of the communion of the deity dwelling in you. It's a simpler way of saying that. You didn't receive a baby Holy Spirit. Nobody gets a baby Holy Spirit. Nobody gets a baby mind of Christ. You get the whole package, praise God. The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in you, in your spirit. Just as Adam said to Eve on the day of her birth, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, so God can look at somebody who's been born again five minutes ago and say, spirit of my spirit. Spirit of my spirit. You were born again complete in Christ, with the mind of Christ now dwelling in your spirit and witnessing and confirming to your spirit that you are indeed of his kind. You are of the God kind. If you're in Christ this morning, this, then you can rejoice in verse 9. Look at it again. What does it say about in Christ? For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been made complete in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to realize in us that we are of God. We are of the God kind. Now you say to me, where's your proof of that? Where is your proof that the Holy Spirit does that? The proof is that the more we let ourselves be led by the Holy Spirit, the more we live as sons of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by which we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now that's Romans 8, 14 to 16. And I've said all that this morning to lead up to saying this. The result of a believer's mind being renewed to sonship, being renewed to this truth, that godliness, goodness, is not something we achieve, but it's in fact our born-again nature that we're of the God kind, that we're of the good kind, that God looks at us and sees that as born-again creation is very good, the effect of this, in allowing ourselves to be convinced of this, something very beautiful happens. And I want to show you it this morning. To see it, we have to look again at the first statement God's Word makes about Adam and Eve when Adam looked at Eve and he realized he was in this communion. Look at that verse again, verse 25 in Genesis 2. As he looked at her and this communion was realized... Verse 25 says this, And the man and his wife were both naked, 
and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. And so I want to make this statement to you this morning. There is no shame in a supernatural union. There is no shame in a supernatural union. Christian, God did not make you to live ashamed before him. Shame was never part of God's life for you. Wherever you got shame from, it did not come from the Spirit of God. Those who are born of him cannot be shamed before him. That's the title of this message. Shame came with the fall, with the curse, with separation. In Christ, the curse of shame is broken forever, for Jesus died on that tree to break that curse. And unless you think that the work of the first Adam is greater than the work of the last Adam, then how in heaven's name can the Holy Spirit ever act as if Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient to birth you complete in him? And that shame is somehow also needed to try and make you a better Christian, a good Christian. Christ's work is a finished work. To believe that Christ's work on the cross is a finished work is to believe that God did not make believers to be alone, but to be with him. He is our DNA. You have been born again of incorruptible seed. Do you know that? incorruptible seed, the very DNA of God, his very spirit. You were born again, complete in Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us by the renewing of our minds to that truth, that we are of the God kind. Those born of a spirit are of the God kind. But minds which have been alienated from the life of God for so long cannot immediately think of ourselves as of our new nature that our new nature is now godliness. When for years we have lived with ungodliness as our father. Because to be ungodly is to be alone, is to be separated from God. So let me say this quite clearly to every believer here. Ungodliness is not your father. Godliness is your father. And the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer is to never cast doubt on your parentage. The Holy Spirit never does that. Why would he do that? We've just read in Romans that the whole work of the Holy Spirit is constantly to witness with the spirit of the believer that you are, yes you are, yes you are, a child of God, of the God kind. How can the one who comes to convince you and who knows just how much you and I need to be convinced that godliness is our father, that the nature of who you're now of is of a God kind, is godly. How can he convince us of that if he's constantly pointing out ungodliness in you? What state would my children be in if I continually picked at them over the years about their appearance, that they didn't look like me? Effectively, continually casting doubts on their parentage. What would they be like? Well, it grieves me to say this, but I tell you what they'd be like. They'd be like the average church goer in this nation and many nations who has for years sat under ministries that have used guilt, condemnation, and shame to try and get Christians to behave more like Christians. All that old-time religion is doing is instilling in born-again believers' minds a denial of their true parentage, godliness. Now, as a man thinks, so he is. So guess what a believer lives like who believes their father is ungodliness? 
They live according to who they have believed their nature to be. And that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, why are you behaving like mere men? Mere men. That's not who you are. They live denying godliness as their father, their true nature. And the Holy Spirit is not trying to get the church to deny godliness is their father, rather to deny ungodliness is their father, their nature, their identity in Christ. And that's why I believe the Holy Spirit has us to preach grace, because grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. That's Titus 2, verse 12. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Now, from time to time, ministers of the gospel, and I have done it myself, when we have not seen clearly the completeness of Christ's work, when we have not seen that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, we have attempted to try and make ourselves or make others more godly. Ever try to make your family more godly? And in our desperation, we've reached for shame as a tool to try and conform Christians better to godliness. I want us to understand this morning that the good father does not raise his children by denying their parentage. I'll say that again. A good father does not raise his children by denying or doubting their parentage. The Holy Spirit cannot use shame on you or I, cannot deny your godliness believer, your new nature, because his whole work in the life of a believer is to convince them of their true nature, their godliness in Christ. Let me give you an example. You know, in our home growing up from a young age, no one really had to tell me that I could become a son of my father. Now, my father's called Patrick, and at times I behaved in a very unpatrick-like way. But you know what? No matter how unpatrick I was, I never doubted for a moment that I was born of him and that he was my father. And no matter how unpatrick I became, he couldn't change that, that he was my father and I was his son. As a result, I know that despite my behavior, he will always love me as his son, and I will always live as his son. So which glorifies the work of Christ more? A believer believing that their sacrificial giving for God is the evidence of their true parentage? Or a believer believing that Christ's sacrificial giving for them is the evidence of their true parentage? Despite the fears of many in the church, teaching believers that their nature is now that of the sinless union of God, that they are indeed, as the Apostle Peter said, partakers of the divine union, does not cause them to deny godliness by their behavior. Rather, it increasingly causes us to deny ungodliness as our nature. And that's why we minister grace, because grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Grace is a far more effective teacher than shame or guilt or condemnation or any of the other teachers at work in the church today, because all they ever do is instill so much doubt in the believer as to their true parentage that their vision remains in the natural realm. And they continually compare their behavior with others and see only difference and not union. And that is why the body of Christ today is so divided. This, that is why we have never and will never use shame or guilt to build anything in this church. 
because all you do is sow seeds of division into people's lives where they start to compare themselves with others. The Bible says you compare yourselves with yourselves, you're not wise. <laughs> you've got a far too low a level of measure because what has been put in you is unmeasurable. And God would open our eyes to see that because what you believe is how you'll live. Anything else is behavior modification. I will admit that churches can get Christians to give quicker using the old carrot and stick technique. I've got to admit that. Tell them one week they'll be more blessed if they only give more. Then tell them the next week that that blessing's now been taken away from them and they're back under a curse for not giving them enough. That certainly will get people to give. And that's why sometimes it's difficult for us to let go of that old covenant teaching because it's easier to control people that way. If you can convince them that God's about to change his mind about them and bless them if. But I would rather leave that extension unfinished than take from one believer what Christ went to the cross that they might have. Freedom from guilt and condemnation and shame. What's the point of building a work if the price in order to get it done is that you have to take from believers their freedom from shame and guilt and condemnation? The building may get bigger, but the Christians will get smaller. And it may surprise you to know that there is something that God desires in this nation greater than bigger churches, bigger Christians. And they are not mutually exclusive. I love big churches. I just believe you can't build one at the expense of the other. It was for such freedom that Christ died that his body, his church, would stand unashamed before him and before each other because we're all of the one kind, the God kind. Those who are born of him cannot be shamed before him. So I've been saying this this morning that we're of the God kind, and I want to close by giving you another proof of that, that we are of the same kind as God. Beings of the same nature share a fellowship that beings of a different nature cannot share. Christopher came around last night, and he brought his dog, didn't he, Jake? He got this golden retriever, you know? And Jake is a little bit... I'm gonna, I better speak well over Jake, you know, but... He's, he didn't even know he was a dog. I mean, um, he was a bit confused about his nature, Jake, you know? He was brought up, actually, funny, he came from a puppy farm, and uh, he, he wasn't allowed to associate with his mother the full time he should have associated with his mother. And if you know anything about dogs, you know that it really messes up a dog, you know? Basically, he doesn't know if he's a cat or a dog or what he is, you know? It's like many believers, okay? <laughs> beings of the same nature share a fellowship that beings of separate natures can never share. Let's call that fellowship by a name. Let's call it love. Beings of the same nature share a love that beings of a different nature can never share. Here's my example. When Hannah was four years old, <laughs> we got her a puppy. And a uh, little Cavalier King Charles puppy. And uh, Hannah called this puppy Emma. And uh, Hannah, a little girl of four, has a lot of love to give. And uh, she gave a lot of love to this dog, you know. And what we didn't know was how much we'd all come to love Emma, you know. If you look up on the internet now, the average age of a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, they get congestive heart failure. Their average age is between 9 and 14. Emma lived to be 17 years of age. She got a lot of love, you know. We used, we used to joke as well, when we as a family used to stand to pray, we'd stand in a circle, and Emma would come into the middle of the circle thinking we're all going for a walk. So she was an anointed dog. She got a lot of, 
She got a lot of prayer over the years, you know. We always reckoned as well that she wasn't fully saved because sometimes when we had her eyes closed, she'd nick the biscuits off the plate, you know. But she got a lot of love, you know. Now, when she eventually passed away a few years ago, Hannah was in university in Edinburgh, and I was given the job of ringing Hannah to tell her that Emma was gone, you know. I was really shocked at how upset I was. You know, I was really upset. Didn't realize that I loved Emma so much, you know. Yet, for all that, I cannot say that I loved Emma in the same way that I love Hannah. The love I have for Emma, or had for Emma, is not the same nature as the love I had and have for Hannah. Because even if Emma had lived to be 70, never mind 17, I could not love Emma in the same way as Hannah. Because Emma was not of me, Hannah is of me. I am her father. She is of me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Child of God, you are of God. Jesus prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane. I would have closed by reading you what he said when he prayed to his father. He said this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. In the same way that God loves Jesus, he loves us according to Jesus. Why? Because you are of the God kind. You are of him if you are here and you are born again of his nature, his spirit. So Jesus Christ came to reveal the height which men have fallen from. We were made of God for fellowship with God. Man was made in his image and likeness of his kind. He breathed his spirit into Adam, so he was able to fellowship with Adam in a garden in a way he could not have fellowshiped, could not have loved any of the other creatures. In that union, Adam could also be unashamed before Eve because being in fellowship with, being of one being with God, Adam was not aware that he even had a self-life. So he had no self to compare to another self to compare favorably or unfavorably. But the moment he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all that changed. With that break of communion, there came self-consciousness. And in that moment, shame. In that moment, he realized he was naked. And shame came upon him. And I close by saying this. Born-again believer, the moment you're sitting in a meeting where another believer tries to use shame on you to make you more godly, you will get a bad taste in your mouth. Remember that taste, the taste of feeling separated from God. It comes every time someone is trying to feed you from the wrong tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather than the tree of life, the tree of religion, rather than Christ. Those who are born of him cannot be shamed before him. Let's bow our heads for a moment. I want to make a declaration over you this morning. River City Church, I declare over you that you were made to live unashamed before God because in Christ he made you and he made you righteous. He made you good for everything God makes is good. For he is a being in good communion with himself, and he placed you and I in that good communion. No 
believer here lives alone. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is why you are born of him. Cannot be ashamed before him. Adam's eyes were opened and he saw that he was naked and he was ashamed. But the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine, you are the last Adam. The Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to see that you're not naked. You are covered and filled by the glory of God. For your life is not a life alone, a life separate. Your life is a life with, a life hidden with Christ in God. I want to declare as well, if there's any here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God ordained it that you would be here this morning. Because all your life, people have been putting a label on you saying you're not this and you're not that. And you're here this morning that you would find supernaturally in your heart right now belief. Belief. That this is what God is like. That God is this good to hold nothing back of himself for you. And as you hear this truth, faith comes in your life and you can be the person God always determined that you would be. A person not living alone under a label. A person living with God. Called son by God. We declare this in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord.